Hello everybody and welcome to a Cane and Rinse Interview Extra podcast and joining me in this special extra podcast is writer and journalist and podcaster as well, Richard Moss. Welcome to Cane and Rinse. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, yeah, so what are we talking about? Well, mainly we're talking about your brand new book, uh, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. We'll talk about your, your other outlets later on as well. But uh, but specifically, uh, yeah, I'm really interested in this because uh, definitely Mac Gaming is something that certainly I think for a lot of people is an afterthought. But actually there is... There is a history there and it has a life of its own, uh, as well as, you know, getting ports of other systems games. And um, yeah, so what what inspired you? Was it that was it a personal history of Mac gaming or was it this is just a, a curious niche of gaming history that hasn't yet been fully explored? Uh, certainly the, the thing that got me interested in in doing the project was was my personal connection to it. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, how aware of it I would have been if I hadn't grown up using Macs. Uh, so from as early as I can remember, and probably even before that, mm. I was using I was using Macs. Right. Uh, my dad my dad bought a Macintosh Plus uh, around the time that came out in '86 or maybe bought '87. I'm not sure exactly. Mm. So that goes back a long way. Um, and some of my earliest memories, both of, of computers uh, and games, and just in general, uh, I was using that machine. And then all through the the nineties and the two thousands, I, I continued to to be a Mac user. And while I did play some some games on other systems, I had like a Super Nintendo, or a PlayStation, a Game Boy. Yeah. Uh, and and my brother had a, a Windows laptop, uh, so I, I got to experience a pretty wide range of games. Uh, I played a lot of games on the Mac, and mm. I was finding that many of those games were they were kind of unique. They were nothing like the things I was playing on these other systems. Right. I think that influenced me a lot, and that that made me think about games in a certain way. Because on the Mac, basically, you had you had ports of of PC games. Yeah. Uh, you had you had a handful of multi-platform games like uh, Blizzard in the late 90s. Everything they were doing was was coming to Mac as well as PC. Yeah. Uh, and, and all through the history of you know, the 34 years of the Mac, there have been games that are multi-platform. But then there was also uh, this independent scene, a lot of which was shareware games, but some of it was mm. also um, little tiny companies who were, were self-publishing or little tiny publishers who were operating these little boutique firms yeah. where they'd, they'd put out various programs. And those things, the, the, the shareware games and the independent software houses, they were doing things that I wasn't seeing on these other platforms. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it makes me think, actually, because often on our podcast, we talk about uh, the differences between our gaming scenes of the 80s so we we have uh, american and british contributors <clears throat> and a dutchman mm. as well um and obviously <laughs> the key difference was that over in america in the 80s uh it was all about the nintendo for young gamers whereas in the uk and europe to it, it was much more about the three 8-bit computers and then the 16-bit computers um so obviously spectrum 
Commodore 64 and Amstrad and then the Atari mm. ST and, and the Commodore Amiga. And I think mm. the scene, it sounds like that the scenes on the Mac were not dissimilar, where you would get all these sort of bedroom coder type people. And it started yeah. off with a lot of clones of existing arcade games, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your own uh, unofficial licensed versions of whatever Galaxian or Space Invaders or Asteroids. And then it, uh, uh, and then you would also get these kind of, yeah, slightly often quite eccentric, kooky out there uh, titles that, you know, wouldn't have been risked on a, you know, on a Nintendo an expensive licensed Nintendo cartridge. So do you have some, do you have any particular games, fond memories of kind of these, these curious titles as I know I do from, from my eight and 16 bit days? Yeah. Yeah. I have quite a few. Um, and, uh, well, I remember just on, on the note of, um, uh, what you're talking about there. Um, Mm. I kind of have this theory that, um, I, I developed as I was working on the book and I haven't really, um, spelled it out in the book, but I think uh, if you read between the lines, it's in there a bit. That the the independent game scene in in the late eighties and the nineties it, it mostly moved into shareware, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. most of that was on the Macintosh. So right. you had the bedroom coding era in, on the eight bit computers. Mm. Then uh, and then in in the common narrative of computer history the indie game scene just kind of died in the yeah. early 90s. Yeah. Uh, aside from a couple of things that that really went big time, like mm. um, id Software stuff and Apogee. Mm. And, and then uh, these kind of obscure shareware games that just everyone played if they were of a certain age, uh, like Scorched Earth. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, a few other things, Elastomania is another one. Um, uh, the, these various games that, that hit the big time, but then the indie game scene didn't really get onto the really on people's radar sure. until yeah. Braid came along. Yeah, right. In, in, mm. in like two thousand and six, two thousand eight, whenever yeah. that was. Yeah. Uh, so there's this era of fifteen years or so that's yeah. kind of lost, but but a lot of cool indie stuff was still happening, and a huge mm. amount of it was either exclusive to the Mac or it was starting out on the Mac. Mm. Yeah, so obviously uh, when I started thinking about uh, conducting this interview, a couple of titles sprang immediately to mind, and we will speak to those, uh, Marathon and, and Mist being perhaps the mm. two most famous games that started on the Mac, but a few others uh, cropped up which I wanted to talk to you about, first of which uh, is a game that I played on the Amiga. Uh, I don't think I knew, or if I did, I hadn't remembered that it was a Mac debut. And that's an odd little game called Shuffle Puck Cafe, which yes. uh, is if it's a kind of first-person air hockey or pong game uh, <laughs> set in a bizarre alien bar. And uh, yeah, it was kind of fun. And it sort of cropped cropped up in beyond good and evil in 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 uh, in a, a mini bar game in 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 that uh, famous title. Um, did you play Shuffle Puck Cafe at the time? Yes, it, it was one of my, my favorite games when I was a, a young kid. Uh, and so it was really cool when I was working on the book to be able to interview Christopher Gross, oh, wonderful. Um, the, the the main guy who, who developed that game. And so mm-hmm. he he did the, the coding and the, and the design while... Um, a couple of guys from Brodebund, uh 
did the the art and sound and they contributed uh, some ideas for for the design and what I found really interesting was that all those characters in the game, as you've played the game, you'd know that um, it's been a while. They'll have they all have a very different style of play. So yeah. you have um, the the lady, the the princess who who um, when she serves, she just lifts her hand and uh, telepathically her yeah. puck moves <laughs> and and she she hits it, uh, and you've got. Um, the the guy who gradually gets drunk as the game goes on. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and if you if you win, I can't remember if you lose as well. But if you win, uh, he'll he'll just pass out at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and disappear off the screen. Um, and you've got the guy who gets really mad at you if you're winning. There's um, the big tough guy who gets really good if you are beating him, and then terrible if you're losing. He gets kind of arrogant. Yeah. All of these characters, um, they were programmed in such a way that, that they were programmed the way that they are based on the artwork and descriptions. Mm. Uh, so Christopher was was taking these descriptions that were, were getting written about the characters. That those descriptions were really just for the manual. Uh, and he was coding their AI routines according to... Uh, those what what he'd read there, and so they had this back this cool back and forth thing, and where he'd get all these ideas from them to work into the game. It makes me think of uh, Punch Out, actually, the sort of sequential, uh, highly characterful um, sort of one on one opposition game. Obviously, this is air hockey or pong rather than boxing, but uh, I think there's a there's mm. a kind of similarity there. Although this was, I guess, this was slightly more. Um, there was a bit more random, whereas Punch Out is very much uh, a kind of learning and observation game. Shuffle Puck Cafe had uh, a certain amount of AI going on, I think, didn't it? So there was a bit more uh, variation. Um, but yes, I think it is literally 1990, 28 years since I last played Shuffle Puck Cafe, but uh, <laughs> maybe I should emulate it. Um, the Amiga version was a bit more colourful than the Mac version by default, I think, although I don't know. Mm um were, were all the were mac games kind of generally uh low color at this point um black and white or they multi, they were know? all black and white okay. until uh, 1988 which is uh -huh. when the macintosh 2 was released that was right. the first color mac ah, I um see. so that had um, most people who bought it would get 16 colors um, some people got 256 colors if oh, they yeah. um if, if they spent some extra money um, and that's when color games began to emerge, uh, like Crystal Quest, which was yes. quite a big success, was the first commercial color game on the Mac. Ah, okay, because that got a re-release on Xbox Live Arcade about ten years ago now. Um, in mm. uh, yeah, in it was a, a little download. It was it was like a few quid, and I'd never really heard of it before. But uh, but it was quite well received, and there seemed to be a certain amount of affection for it. It was a more arcadey style game. Yeah, um, in the 1980s, pretty much everybody had Crystal Quest. Right. Um, so Patrick Buckland, um, co-creator of Carmageddon, uh, was the guy who made that game. Oh, I see. And, okay. And it's it's a bit of a sore point for him how widely pirated it was. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, it was it was a huge success. Yeah. Going back to the black and white days, though, and I know you've done a lot on this. I've read your uh, piece on Gama Sutra, Dark Castle. So this actually mm. predates. 
Castlevania ever so slightly, I believe, or it came out certainly within months of the original Castlevania. So there's no, although it might um, superficially look to have similarities, it's a side-on uh, kind of gothic-themed uh, platformy game with ladders and and uh, and and a hero and stuff. Um, this is, uh, I think, this um, the look of Dark Castle really stands up despite its black and whiteness because it's got this very cool sort of almost pencil-like shaded sort of effect mm. going on yeah it's it's such a beautiful game uh mark stephen pierce was the the artist and designer on that um and it, the programmer by the way was jonathan gay who went on to create flesh uh ah, right so yeah. that makes a lot of sense yeah that there are all these cool um, connections with with people who were, were Mac users um, making games and other software in the late 80s then went on to do amazing stuff later on. Yeah. So Dark Castle is just this beautiful game with um, artwork that uh, was, was pretty much unparalleled um, at the time. And Mark was, Mark was a pretty successful um, digital artist mm. uh, going into that he was one of the co-founders of macromind which later became macromedia uh-huh. uh, which was a huge company in the 90s yeah uh, he it's kind of funny he left he left them in a huff because they needed money because uh, they were out of money and uh, one of them uh, had a father who had enough who had a bit of money and mm-hmm. put in put in some cash uh, i think it was father of one of them Anyway, they they got some money invested, and Mark quit because his share in the company was diluted, and he didn't know yet that that was just standard business practice that you take an investor, everyone's share goes down a bit, so that yeah. the investor can get a cut in the company <laughs> company's sure. fortunes. Yeah, and so when he quit the company, these guys at Silicon Beach Software, uh, who had been making a a mix of productivity, software, and utilities, um, and they they'd been doing a bit of game stuff. Mm. They they reached out to him and said, "Hey, we want you to to design and draw this game for us." And they pitched him an idea. And he thought the their idea was dumb, and he told them so. And on the spot, in this wonderful bit of inspiration, he told them exactly what Dark Castle would be. Mm. And what it what it ended up being is kind of a an animated cartoon platform game. Yeah. Um, and it it had a, a hero who, uh, it, if you watch videos of of the of the Mac version specifically, you you might notice that he, he's very emotive, uh, like a, a cartoon character. Mm. So he if he runs off a ledge, he'll do a kind of a roadrunnery thing where just for a moment he'll hang in the air, he'll look at you. He'll look down, he'll look up, yeah. and then he'll fall. Mm. If he runs into a wall, he, he gets um, like stars or birds going around his head for a while, yeah. and he is confused. Uh, if he trips, it, it's that you actually die. Um, so he can trip mm. over a step if you fail to jump oh, wow. at the right moment uh, on, on a single step. So if there's a staircase, it's different. But if there's a single step... <laughs> it's a horrible, evil bit of game design. That is me. <laughs> he'll, yeah. he'll fall and you'll die. Um, and and uh, all the the bad guys make these different sounds. Um, the it was the first game that I know of with 
a professional voice actor. Oh, really? So they hired someone who's a, a, a big uh, TV and radio voice actor from decades prior. Hmm. Uh, he was kind of semi-retired at the time, and he just happened to be a customer of their company on one of their other products. And so they knew of him, and they got in touch, and, and he agreed to do the voice characterizations. So as far as I know, that that's the very first instance of video game voice acting in Dark Castle. Wow. Yeah, I suppose that uh, all those incidental animations um, were uh, they became commonplace in the 16-bit platformers. But for that to be in a 1986 game, uh, that's that was uh, certainly ahead of its time. And then Dark Castle uh, obviously did well, was uh, signed up and converted and licensed over, came out on multiple formats over the next sort of seven years, all the way up to yeah. uh, to MSX ports. But then beyond that most of them were terrible though yeah um, the mega drive <laughs> version was uh, and and it just looked better in black and white as well but yeah i remember the 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 conversions getting really bad reviews but beyond that obviously the the legacy lived on there was color dark castle in 94 um mm-hmm. after the, the beyond dark castle sequel and then as late as 2008 return to dark castle came out uh, yeah, that, that was in development for about 10 years, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that uh, Mark, Stephen Pierce, and John Gay had uh, no direct involvement in that. No. But Mark's company ended up publishing it because it was uh, so slow in development that right. um, by the time it was done, he had actually bought the rights back for the game. And so he agreed to, to publish it. So uh, we should talk a little about Marathon because obviously uh, we know now really um, Bungie made no, in fact they they sewed lots of stuff into the Halo games um, that basically linked Marathon to to Halo and as of course everybody knows Halo was going to be a Mac game uh, until Microsoft stepped in to to, uh, swipe it for their their new Xbox console. But Marathon, I remember uh, reading computer game magazines at the time and uh, a couple of magazines in particular in the UK were saying, yeah, Doom's cool, Doom's cool, but the the game we really love is Marathon. And I was like, mm-hmm. there's no way I'm ever going to get to play this. Uh, they did eventually <laughs> release Marathon Durandal on uh, on Xbox Live Arcade. And I should say, uh, you know, I've never had a, a, a Mac. Um, I'm, it's nothing anti-Apple. I have an iPhone. It's just I've always had a PC and, and consoles mm. uh, like many people. But um, Marathon was something that I always felt I, I missed out on. Going back to that Durandal version on uh, XBLA was uh, interesting. I think it had aged a little by then. But um, but this was Marathon was a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think interesting is a, a good word to describe the Marathon games now. Um, they they have not aged super well. No. Uh, as, as most games from that era um, haven't. Mm. Uh, it's just something awkward about some of those early 3D games. Um, but Marathon was immensely popular on the Mac. Uh, yeah. I, sold hundreds of thousands of copies, which mm. is uh, pretty special when you consider that uh, most computer users are not gamers. And yeah. there were, uh, in the late 90s, I think around 20 million Macs in the wild. So yeah, wow. so, so when you consider that only a small portion of those people were going to play games and only a, a 
a small portion of the, those gamers are going to have any interest in any kind of first-person shooter, no matter how good it is. Mm. That is really high sales. That was like tenfold better than a hit game on the Mac. Yeah. And so Marathon had a, a very big profile in the Mac community, and uh, Bungie were kind of the heroes of of the Mac world. They yeah. were they were idolized and. Yeah. Even back then, they they had a community. Um, no, the, the Halo games, um, anyone who's ever really looked into them would notice that they, in their peak, had an, a massive community of people um, mm. talking about the games, playing the games, um, writing fan fiction, making uh, cartoons, videos, everything, you know, any kind of creative stuff. Marathon was the same back in the 90s. And one of the most interesting things there was that because the game is so obtuse in its narrative, um, so for anyone who hasn't played it, uh, you have a whole lot of computer terminals scattered around the world. Yeah. And the story is almost entirely contained within those terminals where you, you read uh, log entries, um, you you kind of talk to these, or talk is maybe not the right word, but you... You have some very basic communication with these AIs that were supposed to be running the the spaceships, yeah. But uh, everything went wrong, and without spoiling too much of what happens in the story, one of them has kind of gone rampant, and he's uh, self-aware now and causing all sorts of havoc as a result. Yeah. And there's a very very deep story, but it's also very difficult to understand what's going on. Mm. And so this one guy, uh, his name's Hamish, Hamish Sinclair, made a, a marathon story page, so a website. Right. Uh, around 94 or 95, so pretty early internet, um, yeah. not long after Marathon came out. So Marathon, I think, was 94. And on this page, he was trying to document what Marathon story is and with the help of a community of people, figure out what the hell this thing is all about and and what they're trying to say, and uh, they're reading into it extremely deeply. And the Bungie guys uh, are reading this website as well. And so the Bungie guys are saying that someone has noticed that number seven appears a lot in the games. Right. So in, in the first marathon, the number seven, apparently it is everywhere, all over the place. And that was not intentional in the first game. It was ah. just coincidental. Right. But then so... The the bungee guys are seeing this post and they're thinking, okay, if you think there are a lot of sevens in Marathon, wait until you play Marathon 2. <laughs> and so that they had this this dialogue with the community. And the, the Mac gaming community, even for big stars like Bungie, was small enough and tight-knit enough that, that there could be a productive dialogue between developers and fans. Yeah. Yeah, I know um, <clears throat> our resident uh, Halo super fans at the uh, at the Kane and Rince team um, have yeah sort of fond memories of of the the Bungie community days and and, and miss it very much and and um, we are absolutely a, a format agnostic open minded um, uh, entity Kane and Rince um, but. I do wonder if uh, is do you think there's any bitterness among Mac gamers of the modern world that Destiny and Destiny Two aren't even officially playable on Mac? You know, they've they've like completely sort of abandoned their their history now. I, I'm sure there is some, but uh, I I think that probably most 
serious Bungie fans um, from back in the day would either uh, have given up on Bungie long ago for reasons that I'll yeah. get into in just a moment, yeah. or they're they're perfectly reasonable people and they understand that the Mac is yeah. very small market. And, and they may have bought an Xbox. Bungie have bigger fish to fry nowadays. They're, yeah. they're perfectly entitled to, to go chasing where the market is. You know, they seem to be doing quite a good job of actually alienating their community, uh, <laughs> whereas they used to embrace it. Uh, you know, who knows whether it's to do with the, the stewardship of, uh, of their, their label masters or, or what. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very different vibe around Bungie these days. Yeah, yeah, I can't really speculate on on that at all. All I know is that Bungie are enormous now, and um, Jason Jones, the who was really the the creative force behind the company throughout its history, uh, since he uh, joined up with Alex Seropian uh, for what was actually Bungie's second game back mm-hmm. in ninety um, two or ninety yeah nineteen ninety two I think. Mm-hmm. Um, um minotaur the labyrinth of crete or something like that yeah. it was like a multiplayer game um through that whole era um jason jones has really been the main creative force and as i understand it he still is although hmm. sadly he won't talk to press at all no right interesting Another title that, uh, as soon as you mentioned Mac Gaming, I think springs to many people's minds is Myst. Um, yeah. Obviously, that was a massive breakout hit and uh, even more so than Dark Castle, possibly, although maybe not across quite as many formats because of its technical demands. Um, Myst was ported to anything that would run it, still is. Um, in fact, there's an anniversary collection coming out later this year, uh, I think on good old games. it's uh, These are not going to be uh, remastered or enhanced versions. It's just going to make the the existing games uh, playable on contemporary systems, I think. Um, yeah, what was... Do you know uh, why Myst uh, was built specifically for Mac? Was it just to do with what the, 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 the people who were at the studio at the time? Or? Uh, yeah, so um, th- there is a backstory there, which is um, the brothers, Robin and Rand Miller, mm. uh, who, who founded Cyan, they started using Mac's... Uh, very early on in the in the Mac's life, so uh, Rand uh, was a, a computer was like a computer programmer working in a bank in 1983 when he heard from a relative who works in a computer store about this amazing newfangled Macintosh, mm-hmm. and and he was absolutely fascinated by uh, the the idea of a computer with a graphical user interface, yeah. and. Um, and this whole WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, typing of of documents, which which was almost unheard of on a on a consumer uh, device at the time. And so he bought a Macintosh pretty much right at the beginning, and he loved it. He he read the technical manuals. He thought this thing is incredible, and he couldn't believe how much thought had gone into every little tiny element of its design. But he was also intimidated by it he, he was kind of too scared to make anything on the mm-hmm. mac mm-hmm. until hypercard came out right and so hypercard came out in 1987 and hypercard is it's originally basically a database authoring software mm. um, but with enormous versatility so if you think of a, a web page uh, it's got 
know, text and images and links. And you, if you click on a link, it takes you to another web page. Uh, Hypercard worked in much the same way. It, it was a, a hypertext language, just like the web is. So you had cards and you could click from one card to another card and multiple cards made up a stack. And cards, of, much like with the web, cards could be linked in different ways. You could link them up according to whatever kind of hotspot um, thing or buttons or yeah, really anything you want. And it had a very simple language to use, um, which you didn't even need to use if you didn't want to. You could actually just drag and drop um, buttons and type things and, and just make your very basic program that way. And so Rand at that point decided, okay, I want to make something. And initially he just made the same kinds of things that everyone made with HyperCard, like um, recipes or um, <laughs> bookkeeping stuff, uh, w- whatever little practical uses you could think of. Sure. But then he, he thought about how uh, educational games were so bad for the most part. Uh, hmm. And, and he, he had the sense that maybe uh, if you... If you had a good programmer and a good artist, you'd make a real game. And if you didn't, you'd just make an educational game. And he, he, he had, a, I think, a daughter, a young daughter, and he wanted her to have something that she could enjoy. And so he got in touch with his younger brother, Robin. And Robin is seven or eight years younger. And Robin was like in, in university, I think, at the time. And Robin happens to be a very talented artist and musician. And so Rand thought, let's make an interactive children's book using using HyperCard. Oh, okay. And Robin can Robin can do the artwork and then I will link it up and make sure that everything works nicely. And so he got in touch with Robin and Robin hadn't really kept up with the Mac because I mean college and and finishing high school you did a lot of kids do kind of get out of touch with, with what's happening in the world. Mm. They're more focused on themselves. And so Robin uh, goes to his parents' house, boots up their Mac, puts in this hypercard thing, and he's faced with just a blank screen. Um, but he's got all these drawing tools that he can use uh, there. And so he just on a whim, he decides... I'll draw a manhole cover and a fire hydrant. Right. Doesn't really know why. It's just what came to him in that moment. Uh-huh. And that was going to be the first page of this children's story. But then when he finished drawing it, he thought, okay, what could the hotspot be that would that the, the kid would click on to turn to the next page? Yeah. And he thought, okay, well, the manhole cover will come off and maybe a vine will come out. But then instead of turning the page, he wanted, he wanted to go up and explore the vine as well as going down and exploring what's down inside the manhole. Mm. And so rather than turning the page, he just kept drawing more images. And through exploring his imagination, he built this entire world in HyperCard. <laughs> and and that was kind of a, a sort of HyperCard game. I mean, I mean, not a game in the, in the traditional sense, but yeah. an interactive world that you could explore. And yeah. that was called the manhole. <laughs> and and they they released that um, first at first they self published through Rand's consulting company then Activision jumped on after seeing it at a, a HyperCard Expo 
and so that got released commercially. That was quite successful and, and very significant, uh, actually, in computer history because it was one of the first games with a, an invisible interface where if you click on something, it happens. So you yeah. click on something, you go there. You click on something, it does something. Mm. It was just one-to-one, whatever you click on, that's the thing that does stuff. And so that was pretty successful and very influential. It, it made a, got a lot of people... Uh, thinking about various things and and inspired them to do stuff and the miller brothers went and made another game uh, still kind of kids focused called cosmic osmo and uh, one of the things in that game i then many years later drew my own kind of homage to and put that on my business card <laughs> so i'm quite fond of these games and I then they the made name, a third cosmic osmo yeah mm, then they made a third game which i grew up with playing uh, called Spelunks. It was less less of a world exploration and more of a, a kind of playful science world. So you'd go through these caves and in each room in the cave network, you'd have a whole lot of fun uh, science-y toys to, to play with and interact oh. with. Uh, there's like a lightning generator and you could drop a, a rock down a well and you, you, and wait for the, the sound to come back up to you. You could... Um, play with some physics you could look at the solar system there are all sorts of little fun toys there was a tree some music synthesizers lots of cool stuff and then after that that's when they made mist so they'd got it they'd got a a word from someone that sunsoft the japanese publisher wanted wanted them to do uh, something like those three things that they'd already done but but serious more mature for adults And they thought, fantastic, because they wanted to do something for adults. And Activision said, no, we want you to keep making kids stuff. And so with Sunsoft's backing, they started working on what became Myst. Hmm. And and so Myst was always going to be a, another hypercard game, a, a fourth hypercard thing. But now they were going to go a bit more ambitious. They were going to make it fully color. Um, and Robin tried to draw it in Photoshop initially. And it was taking him so ridiculous such a ridiculous amount of time that yeah. he just had to give up and, and use a different tool. But so it was a hypercard from the very beginning. And, and these guys, they had only really known how to use hypercard to make games anyway. <laughs> and and then when it was a big success, it had to get uh, rewritten by some yeah. people who weren't them to Many work times on other platforms. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. And, um, I mean, yes, I just remember uh, a lot of people being completely baffled by Myst. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the puzzles were notoriously oblique uh, and obscure. Mm. But uh, but it, I, I think maybe if it if it had been more straightforward, perhaps it wouldn't have had quite the same mystique about it, uh, to pardon the pun, that, um, that it ended up with. And, yeah, was it two or three sequels it ended up with? And um, um, one, one made by Cyan and then yeah, Riven. I think... Two more made yeah. by other developers. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe three so, more. Yeah, could be. Uh, as I say, I think we're, we're going to see those out again soon, um, hopefully across all formats or many formats. Um, yeah, so obviously we've talked about uh, some of the, 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 the most famous names there, Shufflepack Cafe, Dark Castle, Crystal Quest, Marathon Mist. Uh, are there any other uh, sort of absolute, um, you know, stalwarts or well-known titles that made their debut on the Mac? 
uh, or, or are there any Mac-centric game series which you feel should have kind of gone mainstream and multi-format? Yeah, I, I'd probably say both. I mean, my personal favorite um, is a series called Glider, which is paper airplane. You got to guide through a house. Uh, it, it did have a Windows version of one of the games, um, but that never really took off. Uh, I don't know that that should have ever been uh, really big time. It was always kind of a, a niche, um, mm. cute, playful thing, but but I would have loved to see that get more appreciation. Yeah. Um, uh, a big one, perhaps, would be the Mac Adventure games. Uh, so Shadowgate and Deja Vu were both ah, quite yeah. big successes uh, outside of the Mac. And they were very yeah. big hits on Nintendo's uh, mm. platform. And also, I think they did pretty well on the other home computer platforms mm. of the time. I certainly remember um, uh, remember them coming to us. So at least Deja Vu came to Amiga, I think. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, so they were they were they were on the Mac very early. Deja Vu was 1985, so just a, a, I think a year after King's Quest, and right. uh, a couple of years before any before the first Scum game, Maniac Mansion. Yeah. So they they were very significant for the adventure game genre in putting all the verbs on the screen. Right. Um, every verb to interact with was just right oh, yeah, there. You yeah. just click on the verb and then you click on the thing you want it to interact with. Yeah. And what I think was the most interesting element that has disappeared from adventure games was it had a, a multi-level inventory system. Mm. So so if you had a... You, you In Deja Vu, you have a jacket, for instance, yeah. and that jacket has pockets. Mm. and And so you store items in it. So if you double click on the jacket, then another window opens showing yeah. you all the items that are in the jacket. <laughs> and one of those items might be a wallet. And so you yeah. double click on the wallet and you see what's in the wallet. Cards and money. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a bit like uh, uh, Resident Evil 4's uh, briefcase. Um, but uh, uh, I'm quite, I'm sort of glad they don't have that in every game because you can you imagine uh having to manage uh Geralt's uh pockets uh, in the Witcher 3 uh it would just that would be the game um <clears throat> yeah so as a, a kind of a bit of a layman when it comes to Mac gaming the I think the only game I've ever played on a Mac was Football Manager um when a friend of mine had an iMac in the early 2000s and you know ostensibly there was no real difference between playing Football Manager on a Mac to playing it on a PC but um, so my my ignorance really is that when I think of Mac gaming, I think of uh, I think of a lack of flexibility as regards to graphics and graphics cards, and I think of a one button mouse. But beyond that, and and are those things that I, I'm right to even think about? But what historically have been the pros and cons of of Mac gaming compared to other formats? Well, the the graphics card thing. Um... Right there, you have one of the biggest pros and one of the biggest cons. Sure. Um, so you've, you've got that lack of flex flexibility, but that's also a pro because yeah. it means that developers only have to optimize for a very small uh, number of, of different configurations and systems. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. it, it's much easier, easier for them to, to target yeah. um, what they need and to optimize their code to work on things and and they don't have to think as much about okay here's what the high end people are going to be able to use and this is the mid range and the low end they would tend to have more of just a if you're on a really new mac you 
you get all these fancy graphics and features. If you're on a low-end Mac, it's going to strip out some stuff. Yeah. And and so it would just be two different basic levels of optimization required. Yeah. And the mouse thing could sometimes be, be an issue depending on the game. Um, yeah. You had other issues. But I'd say mostly they were things that were kind of external to the hardware itself. They were things that were either caused by Apple or mm. by the Mac's quite low market share. So Macs through most of the 90s would have like 1% or 2% market share, I think, around the world, yeah. uh, a slightly higher in America. Um, they, yeah. at their peak, had maybe 15 to 20% uh, in the very early 90s. And then the PC just obliterated them, Mac just like it did uh, the Amiga. And mm -hmm. the Atari ST was kind of falling apart before that. But then Apple was was this kind of chaotic influence on the Mac. Uh, every few years, it seems, Apple suddenly realizes that games should get some attention. And you know, games are... They're lagging behind. The technology's not there, or the the graphics cards aren't good enough. Uh, the the developer support systems need some work, and they they make it a priority. They fix it. They do a good job, and then they just forget about games again. They they don't consider them a priority. And in general, I don't think they do consider it a priority. It's um, there are people within Apple that understand games, and there always have been. Yeah, but at the highest level, the the top executive branch, yeah, the, there doesn't seem to be any interest, and mm. and it, it's been really interesting to look into that as I've as I've done this book. Um, even someone like uh, Av Tavanian, who uh, was CTO of Apple in the the late nineties, so he actually made a couple of shareware games on the Mac in mm. the 80s. Yeah. But then by the late 90s, he's at the top of Apple. And in a meeting when they're, they're cancelling, they're, they're telling some people within the company that they're cancelling their GameSprockets technology, which is kind of a collection of, of APIs, of, of libraries for graphics and game controllers and, and sound and all these different things that you need if you're going to, to make things easy for game developers to put stuff on your platform. They were going to cancel this this project. And one of the guys from that team thought he was he was crazy because he said that games just aren't important to a consumer computing platform. And yeah. and uh, th this guy called him, actually sweared at him and, and called him an idiot. Yeah, He didn't really care because he lost his job along with all his buddies in his team. Right. But because he spoke up, Steve Jobs actually decided to keep him on at the company and keep the project around, but only right. in maintenance mode. So this hmm. poor guy was the entire GameSprockets team for right. a few years before he finally left. Yeah, and obviously, you know, thinking about the founding of Apple, uh, Steve Wozniak was um, was a games guy himself. So, you know, it's sort of... Yeah, yeah that's the Apple II it was well, totally yeah was was created because he wanted to to show off yeah breakout his his game yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, I remember because my first machine was an Atari 8-bit and I remember, you know, games were available for that and the Apple II. Uh, th- those were those were two of the the prominent 8-bit computer formats in the um, in America, particularly in the 80s. Uh, yeah, so we uh, we should save uh, the juice of this for your book uh, for, for to tempt people into reading it. But um, do give us a little uh, about the the shall we call it ill-fated Apple Pippin? <laughs> the Pippin is a, a cool story, um, and it's I, I made it a, a chapter in the book um, because I think that really the the Pippin at its core is is a Macintosh, even though it was manufactured by by Bandai. Mm. The idea for Pippin kind of came mainly from Bandai. This was at the beginning of the very terrible, ill-fated clone program that Apple were doing where they suddenly decided in the midst of their mid-90s dysfunction that they had made the wrong decision to keep proprietary hardware and they should license their, the Mac OS to various companies to, mm-hmm. to make clone Macintoshes, just like IBM had done in the 80s with the PC. Yeah. Which was a terrible idea because by then it's too late and Apple really needed to protect their margins. Mm. Uh, but but they were too dysfunctional to realize this. And so Bandai got wind of the coin program and they thought, we really want to do a home multimedia system and we admire Apple. So they got in touch and they, they proposed this. And eventually it ended up in the hands of um, this guy who um, was, uh, I can't remember his title, it's something something crazy yeah uh, so this guy had a had a job within apple where where he had to license the the macintosh technology to other industries so outside of the home computer space so primarily that would be things like manufacturing or hospitals or whatever yeah uh, but this kind of fell under his rubric because that they could do it as a as a multimedia system that you plug into your TV, that's a, that's a new and different use for a Macintosh. And so he he said, okay, you can do this, but you guys have to make the hardware. We'll work with you. We'll we'll d- develop the operating system. We'll we'll go hand in hand with you through much of this process, but you got to manufacture it. And they said, sure. And then it right from the start, it was kind of doomed because his bosses were never fully uh, enthused about the project. That nobody, nobody in the higher levels of Apple ever really thought this was going to be a big success. And Apple was so dysfunctional that they had no proper organization. And as a result, the Pippin, the whole development uh, disaster. Um, you'd have things where Bandai would need to wait weeks or months for, for, for Apple to get back to them on important issues. Uh-huh. They'd send their CEO to Cupertino to meet with Apple executives and they they wouldn't want to talk to him. Wow. It launched at $600 as well, I believe. Mm. And yeah, sold something like that. 40,000 units in 1995. Yeah. yeah. It had been forecast to go way, way higher. Um, both Apple and Bandai were expecting that it would 
uh, sell quite big numbers, but it wasn't really ready. the The hardware was was underpowered. It was it was a Macintosh essentially with a hard drive ripped out. Yeah. And so they had to like one of their engineering challenges was that they had to find figure out a way to shrink down the operating system so that it would mm-hmm. fit in the BIOS. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember seeing pictures of it, and it was always a funny-looking machine, uh, even at the time. Obviously, you know, certain consoles, uh, actual uh, boxes age better than others and whatever, but the, the Pippin was a was a weird little device. Uh looked more like, I don't know, like a, a conference call uh, machine or something, <laughs> yeah. and it had a banana for a controller, uh, a white a white batarang kind of thing and um yeah i think i think it got about 20 odd games many of which were sort of educational software and children's stuff and yeah um yeah it just never happened uh really um and this was before obviously bandai uh merged with namco to create that uh that whole gaming thing maybe if they'd had namco on board at that point and released some exclusive namco arcade stuff from the mid 90s uh the history might have been different I'd say probably not. Uh, I think no. that <laughs> I think that it was partly an idea that was ahead of its time, um, and partly just it it was always doomed to fail when Apple internally did not believe in it. Yeah. Uh, yes. It, it it needed both Apple and Bandai to be really serious about it and to be collaborating at every stage, and for apple to to have their shit together to be organized yeah sure it's another one of those uh wonderful uh collectibles for your uh for the for the hardcore collectors menagerie of obscure and failed machines definitely one to uh to keep on the shelves if never plug in um yeah so uh to sort of wrap up um steam now has over 6,000 Mac games available, but it, it really wasn't always like this. And obviously that's only a, a still only a fraction of the number of games there are for PC on there, Windows, I should say, and considerably more, uh, you know, probably a similar percentage to the, uh, to the, to the, the user base share. But despite there being thousands of games available for Mac, uh, while you can play the likes of Fortnite currently on Mac, um, but the likes of, or at least officially, uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, Overwatch, and a lot of other the big, a lot of the big titles, hot titles, don't run on Mac OS. Um, so I know there are some alternatives to these. Like there's an Overwatch clone, effectively called Paladins. Um, do these are the is the quality of these such that it makes them legitimate alternatives, or are they more make weights and stop gaps and you know straight to DVD incarnations? I really honestly don't know um, when it comes to most of these um, lower budget alternative things. Um, yeah, because I, I I don't I don't play them. I mostly play um, either old games because I, I do a lot of games history in my my journalism, um, or I I play things that uh, like uh, on my my game consoles because I'm using a five-year-old six-year-old iMac at the moment right yeah. or they're like a truck simulator game or something like that <laughs> um, so so I don't pay a huge amount of attention to to that stuff um, I do know that uh, most games if you're trying to run them in Mac OS they run far worse than they do if you go into boot camp on, on the same hardware um, yeah. performance is just miles better 
on on Windows. Yeah. Um, so do you see for the the future of Mac gaming, do you see anything other than just where we are now, which is, you know, conversions of a, a good percentage, but nowhere near all of the games? Uh, or do you see it, you know, forging its own, continuing to sort of have an identity under its own steam like it has done in the past? Or is that is that now history? I think that's probably a, a thing in the past. Um there's there's kind of been this convergence in in computing over the past decade um yeah where uh, mac linux and windows they're, they're becoming more and more alike mm. and uh, if you're making games it's now very important to be on as many platforms as you can yeah um kind of like a, a throwback to the, the 80s in some ways where you mm. needed to be on the commodore 64 the spectrum the amstrad uh, on DOS, on Apple II or Mac, depending on which part of the '80s you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and then if you if you have some success, maybe you're you're lucky enough to get a, a Nintendo license. Yeah. And so you you had to be on as many things as you could because the market was fragmented and because every every sale made a difference. And I think that that is kind of the reality again, where the platform doesn't matter so much. There's not much of a, a distinct identity to most games platforms. Um, the, mm. the Switch is quite different, but the yeah. PS4 and the Xbox One are, are very, very similar. And mm. um, while Macs have terrible graphics performance at the moment, mm. they're running, at least for the time being, on the same hardware as Windows machines and Linux. And, and Mac OS itself does not have enough of a, a, a unique identity to to form its own uh, insular gaming community. Yeah. Yeah, I would go along with that. But uh, fascinating history nonetheless. Uh, you mentioned your, your games history work there. Do you want to tell us about your uh, your couple of podcasts as well you've got? Yeah, so I, I'm making two podcasts. One is kind of a interview storytelling type uh, show all about play in in all its myriad forms so it's mm. going way broader than just games mm -hmm. uh, i i've done an episode a few months ago on uh, the hide and seek world championship which is this really cool thing that happens every year in italy where people from all around the world come and they play the italian version of hide and seek against each huh. other yeah uh, <laughs> And, and that was a really fun story to do. Um, Have you got the, so, uh, the, the, the the two village football game from, from England? Have you heard of, about that one? Uh, yeah. Once a year, once a year, two villages uh, play a massive game of soccer, basically. Yeah, I think I've, I've heard about that. So, so I, I really try and explore in that, in that show um, play in its, in its many forms and, and how important play is. For, for us as adults and yeah. uh, and I, I I try and produce it nicely so I, I package it into into neat um, stories uh, kind of loosely documentary style with some music cool. um, and then my other show is a games history show uh, the life and times of video games mm. and and it is really trying to be straight documentaries um, where most of the time I'll be interviewing one or two people and doing some research and packaging all of that 
into essentially a magazine style feature article but it's in audio and it has music sounds true uh, music music that i now compose myself um, oh, wow. now that I've, I've got the tools and stuff to do it so that, that's like my creative outlet i get to to make the music for my podcasts excellent well, it sounds very much like something that our cane uh, and rinse listeners would be interested in so that's the life and times of video games the other one's called ludophilia yeah the one that's generally about play, which makes sense. So, uh, yeah, in conclusion, you better tell everybody uh, where they can find your book and find you on the internet. Well, you can find me uh, on Twitter at uh, MossRC, so my surname and then RC. Um, I don't really have any specific home website because I'm a, I'm a full-time freelance writer, but you, you might come across my words uh, somewhere in the games or tech press one day. Uh, and you can find out more about the book and get uh, links to some various stores you can buy it in. Uh, it's also in uh, bookstores in the UK and I think in Australia, but I haven't actually seen it in the wild here yet. Uh, uh, go on a hunt. Must go and yeah, check it if, if you go to the website... Uh, secret history of macgaming.com so the full the book title secret history of macgaming all one word.com superb well richard moss thank you very much for joining me and uh, yeah listeners check it out thanks for having me